Uh, third gospel listed in your Bible um, of the synoptic gospels. Uh, Luke is the last and he's definitely the most descriptive, okay? Uh, Matthew's gospel may have more chapters, and it does. Matthew has 28 chapters, Luke has 24, uh, but Luke has uh, a few thousand more words in it compared to Matthew, so his document is actually larger. Uh, just it's, each story has more, typically has more detail to it. Um, now, I know, I'm not sure if I addressed this at the beginning, uh, but the gospels are divided uh, with uh, what we call the synoptics, and then there's John's gospel. And the, the three first, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics because uh, they're, what they report is essentially the same uh, and along the same lines. Um, they don't all record everything identical, uh, but things are, their similarities are important. Um, the beauty of the synoptic witness of Jesus' life is that they're not perfectly harmonious. Um, have, you ever guys, have you ever heard of uh, two witnesses where their testimonies are identical? If you have, there's a problem, if that's in court. It means they got together, and then uh, both are thrown out. And so uh, if they were perfectly, uh, if they were identical, uh, we'd have a, a problem. Uh, but they're not uh, perfectly harmonious, but they corroborate perfectly uh, the way we would expect a solid body of witnesses to testify about the same event, just from different personalities, different perspectives, and things like that. And, uh, and that's, that's a good thing. And people have been uh, challenging and examining the, the veracity of the synoptics for a long time now. And essentially what they've accomplished is they've helped us fashion better arguments for their veracity, for the truthfulness of the gospel. So we always have the skeptics to thank uh, for making us think uh, more deeply about the events. But anyway, let's, let's get on with the survey. Um, as we've uh, said, our goal from the beginning is to address uh, the most important people, places, events, and doctrines of the Bible in their chronology. And um, we've done that for the most part. I've goofed up a few places. And um, in fact, with Matthew and Mark, uh, recent scholarship has, I think they've done a pretty good job of demonstrating that Mark was actually written before Matthew. And, uh, but we went with tradition and, and, uh, and that's, I mean, it's not like a, a bad thing. Your salvation is not dependent upon who wrote which gospel first, amen? Okay. All right, um, so let's do what we've continued to do through the, the gospels, look at authorship, we'll look at date, uh, spe special considerations or maybe interesting facts whatever you want to call them. Uh, those are the ones that I'm most interested in is uh, some of the, the cool little details in all of the books. And then, of course, how the outline uh, is presented and, and uh, unravels for us. So look at the, let's look at the author. Um, of course, the, the gospel bears the, the, the name of Luke. Uh, he is the accepted author by a variety of people and uh, for a number of reasons. So... Before we do that, I want to talk about Luke as a person first. Um, Luke is a pretty big deal 
in the New Testament, don't you think? How many times do you think his name is mentioned in the New Testament? Take a wild guess. Two? Throw another number out there. Five? Ten? Three. His name only appears three times in the New Testament. And uh, that's it's kind of interesting. And, uh, but the funny thing is, is we always know that he's lingering in the background. And uh, there's various reasons that we know that. Anyway, Luke was a physician, according to Paul, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. So that's one mention of his name. Uh, he was uh, a loyal missionary companion of Paul's, 2 Timothy 4, 11. That's two. And then uh, Philemon chapter 1, verse 24. Was the only times that he's mentioned in, in the New Testament. He was a Gentile. Uh, we learned that from uh, Colossians 4. Uh, Paul mentions all of his missionary companions that are of the circumcision, that is, those that are Jewish. And uh, Luke is not listed among them. And uh, so he is a, a Gentile. Uh, that's that's, that's the, probably the most definitive reason that we can come to that conclusion. Um, he has a Greek name. Um, and he's skilled in, um, it, most likely it appears to be the pagan world's uh, idea of medicine, uh, which points more toward his, his uh, Gentile uh, ethnicity. Uh, Luke was apparently well-educated as a Greek, uh, both in literature and, as we've said, ancient medicine, um, which in some of the medicine back then is pretty bizarre. But... Um, Luke was a first-rate historian, okay, uh, considering not just the, the accuracy of his research, but the amount of details that he provides. Uh, he gets into more details than anybody, um, and um, he talks about uh, his intent in Luke chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, okay. Um, so, why do we think Luke is the author of the gospel? Uh, again, because Luke does not identify himself as the author, we have to look at two different kinds of evidence, or we'd say two different lines. We look at that which is found inside the Bible, and then that which is outside, or external versus internal. Uh, when we looked at Matthew and Mark, because they also don't uh, uh, provide their name as the author, and so we decided to do the external evidence first and then move toward the internal. Uh, now, it needs to be frequently needs to be said unless it's absolutely definitive, but uh, one piece of evidence uh, isn't how we come to that conclusion. Okay? It's, it's all the evidence that we bring together uh, that we, we pin a name onto some of these books. Um, of course, Paul's books are easy to identify, right? He just puts his name in there. And the interesting thing about uh, Paul's letters is that uh, some of the most vicious uh, attacks on the Bible uh, still hold Paul as the, the author of uh, his epistles. So that's pretty interesting. So let's look at some of the external evidence. Uh, to begin with, all of the earliest Greek manuscripts of Luke bear his name. That's an interesting detail. All of the earliest Greek manuscripts have his name on them. 
uh, doesn't prove anything by itself, but it certainly weighs in with the rest of the evidence. Then also, uh, to corroborate that, uh, all of the earliest fathers of the church, unanimously, say that Luke is the author of uh, this gospel. So that's important, uh, especially when we get to the earliest fathers who some were disciples of, some, of John the Apostle. So I'd say that uh, his input matters. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't actually until more recently that his authorship was challenged, uh, but those that have challenged it are few, and the evidence that they present is, I think it's rather unconvincing. But anyway. And then third, uh, there are even uh, liberal scholars who we would expect to challenge Luke's authorship and do not, but actually agree that uh, Luke is the one that, that wrote it. So, and it's simply because of the evidence. So the external evidence is all consistent. What about the internal? Um, so as many uh, scholars would say, that it, if you can identify the author of the book of Acts, then you automatically have the author of the book of Luke. Okay? And uh, there's good reasons for that. Um, uh, first, uh, the two books were written by the same person. Okay? By the same person. Uh, the book of Acts is the second half of a two-part series. Uh, both were written, as we've said, by the same man, but also to the same person, the same addressee. In Acts 1.1, the author mentions the former account that he made regarding the life of Jesus from birth to ascension. And uh, so how does Luke emerge out of all this? Um, it's interesting. In the book of Acts, it seems that uh, the author mentions all of Paul's missionary companions, but two. Who do you think they are? You know, the, you know one, right? That's Luke. Who's the other mysterious person who is actually there a lot but never gets mentioned? It's a mystery that nobody can really figure out why Luke never mentions him. It's Titus. It's Titus. Why isn't he mentioned? Well, Paul mentions him quite often elsewhere. So, anyway. Um, the, um, all of his missionary companions are mentioned in the third person, so none of them could be the author because the author identifies himself in the first person beginning in Acts 16. The narrative shifts from they to we and then later to us, uh, Acts 16. Um, so it's, it's at that time in Acts chapter 16 that the author joins the missionary team. Okay? That's when he joins them. Um, yep. He's never mentioned by name, but we know he's there. Um, if you can figure out why Titus isn't there, I'd love to know that. But anyway, Luke is the only remaining possibility of people. So that's probably the most definitive way that we come to his authorship of the book of Acts. And if we have him as the author of Acts, we have the author of Luke. Let's talk about the date. Um, the evidence points to about AD 60. AD 60. Uh, it corresponds with the time that Paul was in prison in Caesarea, 
uh, we in the West say uh, Caesarea, that's Acts 23. Now that is actually the most ideal time and place for Luke to write the gospel, okay? Uh, during that time, Luke would have had ample time to do all of his research because the gospel of Jesus took place in which land? In Israel, okay? And, uh, and no place to do, uh, to write your document than on the beach, right? Yeah. Uh, he had plenty of time to write the gospel. Uh, he would have had access to uh, all of the eyewitnesses. Uh, and because of some of the details that he provides about uh, the government, many scholars believe that he had access to some of the official documents. And uh, it's a possibility. Um, he would have had time uh, being there in the land to acquaint himself with both the geography of Israel and its customs. Remember, he's a Gentile. And so those are the things that he would be interested in and he would need to learn for his writing. And uh, so having all of that at his fingertips uh, would explain his statement in Luke 1, uh, verse 1 through 4. He says, he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered uh, them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now in verse three, he said that he has perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Now by the word perfect, he actually means complete, complete. He had the whole story, and the way that he acquired the whole story was from the eyewitnesses, okay? Eyewitness accounts, people living in Israel at the time. Uh, Luke could have interviewed Jesus' mother, Mary. It's interesting. Uh, he could have got from her the details about uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias and John the Baptist, right? Uh, she certainly would have had all the details concerning Jesus' genealogy, his birth, and his upbringing. And mind you, he's the only one that mentions that stuff, okay? Uh, Luke could have interviewed the other apostles and then the 70, the disciples. He could have interviewed soldiers, people healed, and as many eyewitnesses as there were. He could have talked to uh, tons of people. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, which he, which he said to them at an earlier date than the, than the Gospel of Luke was written. He said that there are still 500 witnesses who are alive to this day. Okay? So he could have interviewed a number of those. Yep, could have given him plenty of details. Um, and then when he was finished, he would have had people that could check his accuracy. That's the good thing about writing a document when the eyewitnesses are alive. Amen? It's a benefit. And I think this is really the only time that Luke would have had the chance to do this. Uh, what was he doing prior to Paul being arrested in uh, Caesarea, or in Jerusalem, and then uh, imprisoned in Caesarea? He was doing mission work. He was in Asia Minor. He was in Achaia. He was in Greece. He was all over the place. And what was happening after Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea? He was getting shipwrecked. And if he had started the document and took it with him, what would be the problem with that? Papyri doesn't do real well in shipwrecks, okay? 
And, uh, and then he was in Rome with Paul after that. So I think it makes the most sense to say that Luke wrote and published, as it were, uh, the Gospel of Luke beforehand, before leaving on that ship with Paul. And then it began to be distributed from there, copied and, and uh, distributed among the, the people. Uh, so 60 AD is, is an important date. Of course, there's always the, the date that uh, we use as kind of a standard in dating books, and that's the issue of 70 AD. And in, in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke 21, there's the implication there that the temple was still standing. And so it was written before 70 AD. Uh, Luke's gospel was written uh, before the book of Acts, uh, which we know was penned around 61 or 62 AD. Uh, we know it because in, in Acts 1, Luke refers to his previous work concerning the life of Jesus. Okay? Uh, his gospel was the first work, Acts was the second. Uh, some other uh, evidence indicates that Luke's gospel was written after 54 AD. Now, not all of the books uh, can we assign a date uh, of after and before and then kind of sandwich it in between, but we can with Luke's. Uh, there's some interesting details that make it that insists that it's after 54 AD. As we said, Luke comes on the scene in Acts chapter 16, which implies that he converted to Christ shortly before that time, which is around 54 AD, so he certainly didn't write his gospel before his conversion. Is that safe to say? I would say so, okay? Also, Luke strays from the language used by Matthew uh, at the Last Supper, and he uses the words of Paul almost nearly identically from 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, 1 Corinthians was written in 54 or 55 AD, okay? Which suggests the Gospel of Luke was written later than 55. So, written after 55 and before 61, uh, but I think because of uh, the ideal setting for him when Paul was in prison in Caesarea, that really sets the date for us. It's my personal opinion, um, and I think that's pretty much consensus among any uh, Bible-believing um, scholar. I'm not calling myself a scholar. I'm just saying that's their position. All right, let's look at some of the interesting details here of the book. Um, what make it more, I don't know how we would say, Lukean, specific to Luke. Um, we know that Luke was a physician, and uh, Luke has a, has a tendency or a fondness for medical terms uh, in his gospel. Uh, it seems reasonable to believe that Luke wrote the gospel uh, for the Gentiles who were ignorant of Jewish customs and uh, the geography uh, of Israel and then cultural terms. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, I think that as Luke mentions in chapter one, he says others have set out to put in order an account of Jesus' life. Uh, he was aware of those. I believe that he read them and I think that he read Matthew's account and concluded that as a Greek, it could be written better for Greeks. Okay, Matthew's gospel was very obviously written for a Jewish audience, okay? And he takes that for granted throughout the gospel when he writes it. So if a Greek were to pick that up, who's not familiar with Israel, who's not familiar with the culture and the customs and terminology, uh, there would be a lot of things that the Greek would go, you know, be scratching his head. So I think Luke read that and he says, that's a really great presentation for a Jew. But I, there's a few things that I can do. I can 
tweak this and that so that a, a Gentile or a Greek would go, oh, I know what he's saying. Okay, I get it. And, uh, and then I think that he read Mark's gospel and said that I think that some of my, my Greek friends would appreciate a lot more details uh, to verify the accounts, okay? Because Mark's gospel is very brief, it's just to the point, and it's flying super fast. Remember, he's saying immediately and immediately and immediately. It's short, it's sweet, and so Luke's like, well, you know, I'm not sure that's going to work uh, for some of my Greek friends. Maybe not for Theophilus. So in Luke's gospel, uh, he mentions the location of cities for those that have uh, not been to Israel. He doesn't say in Bethsaida or in Kisera. He says uh, this place in this area, this, this many miles or, and so forth. Okay? Uh, he briefly explains the relationship between Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to those that are unfamiliar with Jewish customs. He uses the Greek word for teacher rather than the Jewish word for teacher, which is that, what is that one? Rabbi. A Greek would go, Rabbi? Is that like a Jedi? What is that? Okay. So he uses the, the, the Greek word for teacher. Uh, he provides uh, a genealogy that would appeal more to the Gentile than to the Jew. Uh, Matthew provides a genealogy that confirms that Jesus is related to David, which makes him... Uh, an heir to the throne, and then he is related to Abraham, which makes him the perfect Jew. Luke goes all the way back to where? To Adam. And Greeks were very interested in, in the ideal man. Okay? And uh, both genealogies converge uh, at different points, and uh, so either one of, of the genealogies qualify him to be Messiah and heir to the throne. But Luke goes much further back. That would be more interesting to a Gentile. Um, Luke provides a background for just about everything and focuses on the finer details, and that makes his account more verifiable. Luke gives timestamps like crazy. He gives names and 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 then he and times so that you can date things and figure out who was in power at what time, and and everything is is in harmony historically. We said that he was a first-rate historian. Um, you, you remember when we had Charlie Campbell, when he was speaking about some of the terms that he used for uh, government officials? Well, nobody had ever heard that term until about 150 years ago, some of those. And so the skeptics were criticizing Luke's work and was saying that he was inventing terms. And, uh, and then later on, we found those names uh, and titles of people. And uh, so Luke was um, vindicated. Uh, so yeah, he's just, he's a very good historian. He pays attention to the details. Um, so Luke's gospel ends up being uh, more than just an account of Jesus' life. It's an apologetic for everything Jesus. It's an apologetic. So uh, it's, I think uh, it's kind of as if he was preparing his work for the skeptic, probably unwittingly. Um, it's just the way it goes. So, have you guys ever heard about the Isaiah theories, the two Isaiah theories? That, um, you know, uh, one Isaiah wrote the first half of Isaiah and another Isaiah wrote the second half. And, uh, and Jesus says something very interesting. He says, he quotes Isaiah and he quotes the latter, uh, a, a portion, uh, he quotes a verse from the latter half of Isaiah. 
And then he, he, in the same breath, and he says, and the same Isaiah said this, and he quotes the first half, as if Jesus was getting ready for the skeptics. I love that. Uh, that's, that's not the case. They don't say that about any other book, but Isaiah, and then Jesus, that's the only book he ever says that about. So it's very cool. Yeah. That's uh, divine omniscience. That's the benefit of it. So... Also, um, some interesting facts about Luke. Luke records 17 parables and six miracles not recorded in the other Gospels. Why do you think he would do that? 17 parables is a lot of parables to omit from an account if you were going to write about Jesus' teaching. So why would Matthew omit those and Luke include those? I don't know for sure, but many of those uh, parables reported by Luke have to do with the poor. It's interesting, huh? Yeah. 17 parables, six miracles not recorded in the other Gospels. I think that in uh, interviewing the eyewitnesses, there were some things that were important to him as a physician and as a Greek that caught his attention that wouldn't necessarily catch the attention of a Jew. And Luke said, this is an important detail that my, my, my Greek counterparts would want to know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yep. As uh, we've already said, Luke's gospel is the only gospel written to an individual, a man named Theophilus. Now, some people have, and it's usually the allegorists that have come up with all of these things. Well, Theophilus is probably a name for the church. Uh, it means friend of God. Uh, it's it's this or that, and and I think that's just silly, to be honest. Uh, Luke was writing to his friend Theophilus. There's no reason uh, to try to put an allegorical spin uh, on the text like that. I think it's, it's strange. So Now, it's interesting that Luke's gospel is received fairly late in the game uh, among those in the church. Like it's not, uh, it's not broadcast or distributed among the church as early as some of the others. And uh, I was reading a, a, one scholar who said, uh, well, yeah, that really makes a lot of sense because it was sent to an individual and not to a church. So Luke, uh, Theophilus received those things and that sometime he, he thought it best to probably copy and distribute. Whereas the other ones, when, like when Paul wrote to some of the churches, he said, make sure that that is copied and then sent to the, the Magnesians. So he even commanded the churches to copy and distribute his letters. Um, <clears throat> but Luke sent his to a, an individual so, anyway, and I'm glad that he, I'm glad that he wrote the Gospel of Luke, but I'm super glad that he wrote the book of Acts. Imagine that if all we had was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Romans to Revelation with no book of Acts. You'd hear Paul mentioning all these names, and you'd be like, who's that? And all these details from what we know of in the book of Acts, we'd just be lost. It's the, it's the book of Acts that kind of connects all of the stuff, but Acts is for uh, a couple of Thursdays from now. So anyway, uh, that's the Gospel of Luke. Let's look at the outline. We got some time here. Um, I stole and modified uh, one of Norman Geisler's and then, and then stole and modified some other people's as well and then put them together. So, <clears throat> the, 
the Gospel of Luke focuses on the Son of Man, okay, the Son of Man. We'll talk about how, what the others focus on at the end, but so in, in chapter 1 through 4, verse 13, or I'm sorry, chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, it talks about Jesus' manhood at his advent, and then chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 23, verse 56 is Jesus' ministry, and then Jesus' majesty in chapter 24. So let's break these down. We got, we got time for that. Uh, Jesus' introduction, chapter 1, uh, we have the birth of Jesus is announced by Gabriel to Mary. And mind you, these, in Matthew, the angel announces it to Joseph. But in Luke, the angel announces it to Mary. And Mary was actually informed before Joseph. Okay? And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we have the details about Jesus' birth. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 8 through chapter 4 through 14, uh, we have this discussion about Jesus' identity. Uh, and it is interesting that his identity comes across as announced to the shepherds. He goes to the temple. It's, it's, uh, he's identified by Simeon, uh, or uh, I think it's Simeon, not Simon. Uh, he's recognized by um, John the Baptist. His identity is declared by the Father, his baptism. And that it's at that point that then John inserts the genealogy. It's a very interesting place to do that. But he's proven, his identity is proven by his genealogy. And then his identity, in an interesting way, is challenged in the temptation by Satan. Interesting stuff. Then we move to Jesus' ministry. Uh, in chapter 4, uh, verse 14 to chapter 9, verse 50, uh, we find Jesus' ministry in the north. Now, that's uh, the same when we are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when we get to the Gospel of John, uh, the bulk of the book is not in the north, it's in the south. Okay. And that probably has something to do with why John wrote his gospel, is that the other guys focused on his northern ministry, and John focuses a lot of attention in his southern ministry. Um, Jesus uh, very soon goes to Nazareth, and then the words uh, that John talked about in John 1, verse 11, uh, they ring true. He says that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him, John 1, 11. It's in the north that Jesus spent um, most of his time teaching the people, preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing the sick, uh, performing great miracles. Uh, now, what is interesting is when we look at uh, the, the synoptic gospels, uh, there's not a lot of these uh, statements that, that emphatically talk about Jesus' deity. That's true when we get to the book of John. In the, the synoptics, it's more, more of activities of deity. It's proving his deity by what he does rather than what, by what he says. Okay? And, and I think that's beautiful because then you take the, the decorative statements of John and you take the activity in the synoptics and then you bring them together and they're beautiful. Okay? And, that's, and so in Luke, uh, like Matthew and Mark, it's the, it's the great miracles that are performed that testify to his deity. When he tells the weather to, to stop doing what it's doing, that's an indication of deity, okay? When, he, uh, when demons tremble in his presence, that's an indication of his deity, okay? When he heals a leper, of all things, that's an indication of his deity, okay? So it's more of actions that prove his deity rather than his words. 
Uh, it's there that he calls his disciples. He sends them out. Of course, uh, you can't have uh, a, a gospel narrative without debates with, and, uh, with the Pharisees and, of course, chastising them. And then it's in the north that Jesus is transfigured on the mount. And then in chapter 9, verse 51 through 21, Jesus is leaving Galilee, and he's, he's basically heading toward the cross. It says he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And uh, he initially goes through Samaria. Now, when we look at the Gospels, of course, Jesus is north and south frequently for the feasts. There's a, a couple times he goes through Samaria heading north, or one time heading north, one time he heads south through Samaria. Uh, things went well when he went north in John 4. Things don't go well in, uh, in Luke's Gospel in 9 when he goes south, and that's where um, John and his brother get a name. Anybody know the name they get? Anergus, yeah, Sons of Thunder. Uh, it wasn't a good name in the context. So. Um, but then other times, uh, like a good Jewish boy, you know, you have the, the, the Sea of Galilee here, you have the Jordan River, and then you have the Dead Sea here. You have the Galilee, you have Samaria, and then you have Judea. And what the good Jews would do, uh, the, the, those rabbinically trained, is at the south end of the Galilee, they would cross over the Jordan because they wanted to avoid Samaria because they hated them. And uh, then they would travel down the east side of the Jordan and then uh, across from Jericho, they would cross the river into Judea. Okay? Uh, Jesus didn't do that on this trip. He went south uh, through Samaria and they rejected him. Then when he gets into Judea, he sends out the 70, 72, depending on uh, which uh, manuscript uh, you're using. It's there that he, he curses the unbelieving cities where the kingdom was preached. He delivers the woes to the Pharisee. And this is where he begins to teach all of those parables, loads and loads of them. Gives his warning about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, warnings that we should take heed to today, even though we don't call people Pharisees and Sadducees, they're, they're in the church. They're in the church. And then, of course, he predicted the future about Jerusalem, and then he predicts his death to the disciples. And of course, uh, we're moving closer and closer to the cross, chapter 22 and 23. Jesus is betrayed. He's abandoned. He's mocked. He's falsely accused, falsely convicted. He's falsely condemned, and he's crucified and then buried. And this is interesting how Norman Geisler did all this. He calls chapter 24 the, the verse of opening, or the chapter of opening. And... Uh, Yep. So we see Jesus is risen from the dead. He reveals himself through the scriptures on the road to Emmaus. There was an opening. He presented himself to the disciples, their understanding of all things, and then he was received into heaven. Yep. That's the end. Now, it's because of all of Luke's details uh, that are found in the gospel, it's the most comprehensive. It's the most comprehensive. Uh, it doesn't make it the most significant, just the most comprehensive. It makes it, um, uh, I think, most comprehensive, especially for modern historians who are looking for the facts surrounding all the details of Jesus' life. Okay, for that reason, I think it's, 
extremely valuable. Uh, we did talk about Mark, where A.T. Robertson, uh, he kind of chastises people for giving new believers John, which is the deepest and most philosophical of all the Gospels. And he says, rather, you should be giving them the book of Mark as their introduction to the life of Jesus. And uh, I'm kind of agreeing with him on that. But people with an analytical mind, uh, the Gospel of Luke would certainly uh, be good for them. So Luke has educated the best historians, and he's silenced uh, the, the, the most critical among them. But most of all, I think that Luke has blessed the body of Christ with the most complete story of Jesus, most complete. Now, Matthew, as I said, I would mention in the end, Matthew focused on Jesus' royalty. He's the king, okay, king of the Jews. Uh, Mark focuses on the servanthood of Jesus, uh, Luke on the humanity of Jesus, and then next week we'll look at John, and John focuses on the deity of Christ. Okay? Fair enough? All right, you're out five minutes early. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. And then, Bob, when I get done with the book of Acts, is, no, I mean with John, is that when you wanted to do another? Okay. Okay. All right. Or you can do it at the end of Acts, or would that be too much? Too much. Okay. All right. All right. Well, Father, thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Luke, another witness uh, to your life. And Lord, what a, a tremendous apologetic. Lord, the, all of the historical facts laid out, all of the details, and, and so many things verifiable, especially at that time. Everything was verifiable with people still alive that had witnessed um, your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension. And, uh, and Lord, so we really do stand on their testimony, and we appreciate it. And I just pray that as we continue to read your word, that it's true that faith will come by hearing, that we'll trust you more, we'll trust the veracity of your scriptures, and Lord, we'll rely more upon you, your grace. So Lord, thanks for my church family, and I just ask that you bless them the rest of the week, encourage their hearts, and bring us back together Sunday, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.